Well, one of the great blessings of being able to gather together and, and be here singing songs with each other side by side is that when you have a Sunday school that gets into talking about life and death and even the reality that God knows our days and that we can have no fear in death, and then we sing in Christ alone and we sing the words, no guilt in life, no fear in death, this is the power of Christ in me. And I make eye contact with the brother who just taught me in Sunday school and Daryl, and we just, you know, you, you, you smile, you smirk, you just, we just talked about this, now we're singing it. That's a wonderful thing for us to be here together together. Now let's go before the Lord in prayer, as we always do, as we open up his word to hear from God together, side by side. Let's pray. Father, you are so good to us. You know us more than we know ourselves. You know what we need. You revealed that in your word. Would you draw us to your word would you help us to see and hear and understand and grasp and love truths that transform in the scriptures? We thank you for what you've revealed. We look in anticipation to what we might glean from your revelation for our good, for your glory. We ask these things in Christ's name, amen. I want you all to remember way, way back when you were a kid. Now, I came from a family that had family rules, and if you came from a family that had family rules, you will know that over time, either sometimes you would just kind of push the, or get close to the family rule line, maybe without breaking it, or sometimes you'd make sure nobody else was watching when you were going to break said family rule, okay? I don't need a show of hands, but we recognize that that happens, and even sometimes we're going on and concocting, creating this whole defense that we might have in case we happen to get caught. And something like that. I, like I said, grew up in a home with rules, but they didn't happen to have a family rule against breaking and entering. That's just because it was one of those obvious rules you'd never think a 10-year-old might be tempted to break. But I had older neighborhood friends, and one day, they all came up with the plan, or, you know, we came up with a plan, and it was not so bright, not at all, very dumb, to go inside a home in our housing complex that we knew hadn't been occupied for some time because people had moved out and it was vacant. So a bunch of young kids now thought up the idea that it would be fun to kind of jump the fence and somehow get into this house. I don't know why, but, but these, things, these things happen. And we came up with a plan ahead of time that if we should get caught, that we just say, they'd blame it on the youngest, myself at the time. Uh, they used to call me Danny. I would go by Danny more then than Daniel, and they'd say, hey, if someone catches us, we're just gonna say, 
Yeah, Danny's football with his name on it went over the fence and somehow into the house. And that's why we were there. We are just helping Danny out. <laughs> of course, they sent me first in this whole debacle. And, you know, the issues of the fact that I didn't have a football with my name on it kind of was a little suspect to our plan, but somehow <laughs> we came up with this made-up story. And I had to call my mom, because I have a terrible memory, just to kind of remember some of the things. And let's just say a neighbor saw the commotion and reached out to our parents, and this, this kind of made-up story didn't lessen at all, let me just say, the consequences, as we all got in a lot of trouble that day. But I tell you all that, not just to remind you how foolish kids can be in breaking rules, but also to set up our passage today, which has to do with Jesus and his disciples getting caught doing a big no-no according to the religious leaders and the Pharisees' expectations. Now, unlike me and my friends, breaking actual rules and laws for that matter, Jesus and his disciples did not break any real rules of God but they did violate legalistic expectations of the Pharisees. And just like me and my friends, they did have a defense and gave answers, but unlike us, of course, their answers were not made up lies, but actually vindicated them as innocent and even praiseworthy in what they did. But the Pharisees, you see, they didn't see it that way. And what we're going to see today is that Jesus' actions and teaching in this great Sabbath debate between the Pharisees and Jesus would actually be one of the very reasons they wanted him dead. They wanted to kill him. So let's see how this debate began now in Matthew chapter 12 and verses 1 to 8. And we're actually going to Rewind back to Matthew 11 and verse 28 to 12, 8 that we saw last week. And let's just stand for the reading of God's word in this, this first point together. This is God's holy and inspired word. And in our first point, we're going to see the Sabbath legalists refuted, starting in Matthew 11 and verse 28. He says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light, Jesus says. Then it says in verse 1 of chapter 12, At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look! Your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you. Something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. You may be seated. 
Sabbath legalists here are refuted. Did you see the connection between what we saw at the end of chapter 11 and our time last time to this week's topic of the Sabbath? Jesus says that the burdened people that, that can and will find rest in him, he calls them to himself. Then he goes out into a field, get this, and he wasn't surprised that these Pharisees were going to be there. I believe Jesus intentionally positioned himself and his disciples in view of these Pharisees in order to have this Sabbath debate or Sabbath showdown, if you will. He wasn't like me and my friends trying to hide our actions, but in confidence went out into that field on the Sabbath almost to bait the Pharisees into this discussion or debate. Now, as we've been seeing, the Pharisees didn't need much reason to keep an eye out on Jesus because that is all they've been doing through his whole ministry, but complaining and criticizing him and coming against him in opposition, speaking against Jesus' ministry. We've seen it over and over again. But here we are, Jesus, not being a coward or pushover, trying to submit to the religious status quo. Oh, you know, they won't like that, so I'm not going to do that. That's not what Jesus did. But he was rather the, and is, the authoritative king who was showing how there was a new sheriff in town, you see, and that he had the right to correct misinterpretations of the law, kind of like he did on the Sermon on the Mount before, because he was the fulfillment of the law in his person and work. Remember the Sermon on the Mount? You have heard that it said, but I say to you. You have heard that it was said, but I say to you. He's doing a similar thing here, confronting and correcting. And this transition here is from the rest that we saw in chapter 11 in Christ to the Sabbath, which was all about rest on Saturdays, as prescribed by what? The Mosaic law for the people of God. But you see here the Pharisees and their many rules and additions to the law, add-ons, turn the Sabbath, which was supposed to be for people's good and rest all along, into a no rest Sabbath, because their additional rules basically made even the most religious person who loves rules, 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 maybe that's you, maybe that's someone you know, uh, even the most religious person who loves that kind of thing, it would make even them anxious and nervous about all the ways they might in unintentionally violate even the Sabbath expectations. One commentary points out the absurdity of the burdensome laws and even the practice of some Jewish people today, contemporary Jewish people, and this is how he describes it. He says, for that reason, <laughs> some Orthodox Jews today use automatic timers to turn on lights in their homes well before the Sabbath begins. Otherwise, they might forget to turn them on in time and have to spend the night in the dark. Baths could not be taken for fear some of the water might spill onto the floor and wash it. Chairs could not be moved 
because dragging them might make a furrow in the ground. And when a woman was not to look in the mirror lest she see a gray hair and be tempted to pull it out. The, the, the Jewish people take these Sabbath laws, many of them, very extremely seriously even today. But as you could imagine, it was even more serious in the days of Jesus when he was walking the earth that we just read about in our context in Matthew 12. So seriously, just to point this out, that in some cases of history, the Jews would not even defend themselves if they were attacked on the Sabbath. Can you imagine? R.C. Sproul observed this, the Jews took Sabbath keeping so seriously that they were willing to suffer death to themselves and to their children rather than violate the Sabbath day. This took place during the assault of Jerusalem by the Roman general Pompey in 63 BC. The Jews refused to fight on the Sabbath as a matter of national honor. So when Jesus came around breaking their expectations and added rules, can you see why those who took it so serious wanted to kill him? They were unjustified in that, but do you see how serious that this was. But even though times were changing with the coming of Jesus, he didn't really violate the regulations here in the Old Covenant as the Old Covenant was still in force during this transitionary time when Jesus walked the earth. This is, remember, prior to his death, which established the New Covenant in his blood. When he came around, these laws, Old Covenant laws, Mosaic laws, were still in force. And Jesus then gave a real defense and defenses, plural, to the Pharisees, proving that he and his disciples were not sinning. He pointed to a situation when David ate, this is in the Old Testament, the bread in the temple, and where the priest worked rather hard on the Sabbath regularly in the temple. But that they were all guiltless. He was pointing things out. First, David and his men were in need, so their need took precedence, you see, to the ritual practices of the law. It's recorded there in Scripture. And also, the priests did some of their most strenuous work on the Sabbath in the temple. Kind of like pastors and other church leaders do a lot of work on the Lord's Day Sunday, but even in all their work in the temple... They were blameless. You see what he's pointing out? Jesus was like, earth to the Pharisees. Have you ever read the scriptures? Are you so dull? This is another reason they got mad at him. You know, he's calling them out. But then look how Jesus even ups the ante here from well-known Old Testament examples and defenses to showing now how unique and powerful and the kind of authority that he had right there before them, in front of them. Once again, let's see it in Matthew 12 and verses 6 to 8. To Can I just bring this and drive this home? It says, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. This is a clincher argument. Not only were they not guilty because they were simply getting food in an appropriate way when hungry, and they were allowed, just to catch us all up, to pick food 
from farms for their immediate need. They weren't like sowing and reaping. This wasn't their job. They weren't working. They had a real need. And in the old covenant, it wasn't stealing. If you were on the road, out and about, if you had a need, you could meet that need, that short-term need to get you by as you go through. You're not, you know, storing up things and <laughs> taking all the... This was something in the old covenant that was allowed for them. So they, they weren't stealing. They didn't do anything wrong here. And they had a real need... And not only was there Old Testament precedence of both need and work based on the priest's role to vindicate them, and it did, but now Jesus just drops the mic in this debate and says what the Pharisees have continued to deny about him and claim that he was divine, that he was God, which infuriated the religious leaders who denied that he was the Messiah. Do you see all the reasons they were against him? He's like, not only am I gonna put myself on the level of a king and of the priests. They'd be offended by that. But he says, I'm better than all of them put together. In fact, I'm better than the very temple itself that the priests justifiably profaned in their work on the Sabbath. This was a real shocking thing for them to hear, and they were ready to fight. They did not like what Jesus was saying. So you see here, as we've been saying regularly, the Pharisees were completely missing the point of the Sabbath and missing the point of the whole law itself. They're pointing to Jesus, but they just weren't seeing it. Because God has always desired mercy over sacrifice. This was a quote from Hosea 6.6 6 that we read here in Matthew. So if these religious Pharisees only knew the heart of God, they would know that it was lawful for hungry followers of Christ to pick food up and eat it even on the Sabbath. But that Jesus even had the authority to say what was right and wrong on the Sabbath is, is what he's getting here at the end there, not them. They thought they had the authority. Jesus is like, nah, I'm the king. I'm boss. He's the real deal. Jesus is Lord, Lord of all, including Lord of the Sabbath. Now, I said that that's a mic drop moment. That should end the debate. It's over. You know, it, it, that, if, if there's a moment like that, that's the moment. It's over. But as we're going to see, the debate will go on. And the Pharisees will continue to come against Jesus. And before we move on, I want to ask you, do you today have the tendency in your heart to add to God's word and truths, add expectations on yourself and others that are somehow like not found in scriptures but just made up by you. If so, if we're adding those things on that can't be justified through Christ in the scriptures, it means that you're a legalist like the Pharisees and you're not going to have any biblical warrant to stand on yourself. So the encouragement would be that when you teach and get excited about religious things and expectations, make sure it's actually biblical. Because those rules or burdens that you might put on somebody else, if they're not biblical, you're just being a Pharisee and you've got no ground to stand on. And did you know that some even today, I've talked to some members of our church about this, even teach that the Sabbath, Saturday, 
even, is still in force and push many burdensome requirements on people that have no biblical warrant to do so. I taught and Baptist Faith in the Message during an evening service um, on the Lord's Day and kind of leaned into this a little bit. We may have friends that heap up expectations upon us for Sabbath keeping, or some people transition the Sabbath rules of the Saturday and kind of move it over to Sunday and in a kind of way that we don't really see the New Testament scriptures or Jesus or anyone actually doing, but they just decide to make those rules just transfer over and don't believe that the scriptures reveal that. More on that later, but I want us all to examine ourselves because we can fall into this ditch of the losing side of the debate here. We, we want to be on the Jesus' side, the winning side, not on the losing side. And even in addition to Sabbath keeping, there may be a lot of other expectations that we might heap up on our kids or on our friends or on our church members um, or just on whoever made up by us, kind of picked up like fleas without ever really noticing it or without even really having an arguing in your heart and mind that it's biblical. But it, if it's man-made and legalistic, those types of expectations are things to be avoided. I think that's what we're seeing here as a warning for us. But let's, let's move on in this Sabbath debate to see what happens next in point number two. We saw the Sabbath legalists refuted. Now we see in number two, Sabbath hypocrites enraged. Let's see it in verses nine through 14. He went from there and entered their synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, is, this, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So that they might accuse him. He said to them, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out. Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him. How? to destroy him. Wow, did you see that? Things are really heating up in this debate. This isn't just a casual chat and disagreement. This is serious. No longer just a discussion or a debate. It's now turning up. The heat is turning up to a premeditated savior homicide. You see that? They want to destroy him. They want to kill him in the midst of this debate. To kill King Jesus over what he was saying and doing on the Sabbath. If your attention is not peaked here, you must not be listening because the stakes are really high in this debate. I want us all to see it. Jesus' life was on the line, and things like this would actually be the fuel of the fire and rage and hate against him that would drive him to the cross to be killed later in his ministry. He had purposes and plans to go to the cross, certainly, that we know. Bigger plans of salvation and things. But you recognize that the people who basically drove him there were driving him there because of things like this. But Jesus, you see, knew exactly what he was doing. He wasn't afraid. And as mentioned before, 
he of course went to the field to start this debate. And now I hope you can see that it cannot be any clearer that going to a synagogue of all places meant that he intended this debate to continue on. It was running away. He intended to go on with these haters because, of course, he knew that this is the place. The synagogue was the place that the Pharisees would be. Do you see that? He's continuing the debate for his purpose to reveal himself over the religious teaching and status quo of the day. And in this debate, the hard-hearted Pharisees, you see, I don't want us to miss, in the midst of this whole debate, the amazing and compassionate, miracle-working Jesus and what he did to help this suffering man. This guy had a shriveled and deformed hand that was, would not work, and it caused him to be vulnerable in that. And, and Charles Quarles in his new commentary that just came out vividly sets the picture well, so I'm gonna read it to you. He said, the command to stretch out your hand permitted the bystanders standers, to witness the amazing miracle as it occurred, right before their eyes. Before their very eyes, new muscle tissue formed around the, the bones of the hand and the formerly paralyzed fingers began to wiggle and extend. The restoration was immediate and complete, so complete that the affected hand was now fully resembled by the healthy hand in appearance and was identical in mobility and strength. This is an amazing miracle right before their eyes. What an astonishing witness to see. And you'd think people would rejoice at the healing of this guy. But instead, they just wanted to kill their debate partner, Jesus, in the midst of this wonderful, compassionate act. And don't you just love Jesus and how he flips their twisted and obvious, no-duh logic on them? Do y'all remember using the word no da or da. Maybe it's just my childhood and adolescence. I was thinking about that other story. Maybe we still use it. But of course, that means, for those of you who don't know, hello, wake up. It's obvious the conclusion here. I mean, da. And Jesus' duh logic is here. He says, y'all know that if one of your sheep fell into a pit and was gonna be hurt and die, you know what you do on the Sabbath in that situation. Because apparently they, had ex they were allowed to, you know, do the work there to help get the sheep out of the pit even on the Sabbath day. And he got them right where they were, like the hypocrites. Like He got them. He had them on the, on the hook here. And Jesus argues logically from the lesser helping a sheep, an animal of all things, to the greater being willing to help a suffering human being before their very eyes, as they saw. And he points out, not only are there these exceptions to their stringent rules in the Old Covenant, but that it was always God's plan for mercy and help and good to be done every day, let alone even on the Sabbath. Hear this. If your religious rules and expectations lead you away from the good news gospel of Jesus Christ, and love and a heart of help and care for
or needy people around you, then you've fallen into the trap of legalistic Pharisees and will completely just continue to miss the point of what God has actually called you to do. You're blinded about the needs ahead of you because you're so caught up in these legalistic expectations. Don't miss the point. Jesus has come to the scene, church, and Jesus makes all things new. And he enacted a monumental shift as it relates to religious things. And all things are to be seen and viewed through Christ alone, speaking of the song, and no one is going to win a debate against King Jesus. Ain't gonna happen. I hope you can see it demonstrated clearly here. And even in all their hostility and desire to kill Jesus for doing good and godly things, they didn't like him for doing good. They were so warped and deceived and blind even when Jesus did great and kind and compassionate healings because they were just dead set, mind made up to take him down and to completely ignore the evidence of miraculous, wonderful healings. Now, for us, we could either get with the program and get on Jesus' side of things and start living our Christian life in the fullness of all that Jesus said and did in his person and work, or we can continue to add burdens and oppose the point of all that Jesus said and did. Those are our options. You're either with Christ or against him. There's no middle way. You're either supportive of his word and truth and gospel, including supporting gospel preaching ministry, gospel preaching and teaching and living churches and being a part of and encouraging and using your gifts and participation with and involvement in a healthy gospel preaching church, or you're an enemy of the gospel and of Christ and his people like these Pharisees. They were religious too, right? They thought they had the way to God too, right? We want to get on the right side here of this debate and of biblical history with Christ alone. Now, the debate here was over and Jesus won. Done. But the Pharisees were still planning to kill him, as you see. And when they didn't get their way, they planned their attack. Often when stubborn and hard-hearted people have their plans frustrated, what happens? They double down. And they go into attack mode like we see here. So what does happen next? How does Jesus respond to all this commotion and opposition against him? Would he be destroyed at the end of this debate as the Pharisees were planning? Or what would happen? This leads us to our third and final point. And number three, Sabbath Lord brings actual rest. Let's see it in verses 15 through 21. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him. And he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles." He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. 
Sabbath Lord brings actual rest. This whole debate and argument began, I think, to highlight the real and genuine rest that is only found in King Jesus, our Savior and our Lord. The Pharisees knew how to, as Quarles put it, pervert the very purpose of the Sabbath and impose on people a restless Sabbath. That's a good way to put it. Because a no-rest Sabbath, as I said before, or a restless Sabbath does nothing for people but heap on them burdens that God never intended. That just wears them out. And now, in the person and work of Jesus, the Sabbath has been fulfilled in him. Remember, we saw in the book of Galatians, in our Galatians series, that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law. Jesus came to fulfill the law. And he did, in his person and work. And Hebrews 4 tells us that Jesus really does fulfill the Sabbath, and our eternal rest is in him. Hebrews 4, 9, and 10 says this, so then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. You see, the rest, as you see in context of Hebrews, is in Christ who suffered As the suffering servant who paid for all of our sins and he did all the work necessary to bring us into right relationship with God or justification. Remember, Galatians, gospel-centered justifications, not work-centered or or tradition-centered justification, but gospel, good news, Jesus-centered justification. I agree with Tom Schreiner on this who argues well that though Jesus entered the world during his earthly ministry, during the transitionary time, that he was still under the old covenant law, we see that in this text, keeping the law, he would later, in his death, fulfill it, and I quote from Schreiner, new covenant believers say goodbye to the Sabbath, for it belongs to the old covenant. We don't live under that administration, but... We say hello to the Sabbath, for the Sabbath is fulfilled in Jesus Christ and points to our future heavenly rest, as we saw there in Hebrews 4. And that is what it's all about. Jesus, our rest, now and into the future. Now, this doesn't say that we don't recognize the Lord's Day on Sunday, as Christians always have, the resurrection day that we meet on the first day of the week, like we are today, and that we shouldn't gather. Yeah, we should, we should gather. That's an expectation. But we don't have all the old covenant laws and stringent things applied to this day or any other day, for that matter, as seen throughout the New Testament. You would think that we would get direction on all that in the New Testament letters about how we would participate certain things in the Lord's Day. What we get, Hebrews 10 and other places, is that we can't forsake the gathering together, but we don't get anything about don't do this, don't do that, do this, do that, don't do that, set the lights, do this, can't do that. Nothing like that in the New Covenant. Why? Because Jesus fulfilled the Sabbath, and our rest is in him, certainly. 
principles of rest is needed. Nobody can go at 24 hours a day, seven days a week. We need to find our, our rest in Christ, and we need to practically rest as well. But the specific day that you might do it and, and how that looks is not prescribed for us in the new covenant. Christ has fulfilled that kind of thing. But even as we see here that Jesus won the debate and left his disciples well-fed when they were hungry, and his hurting uh, man with a hand healed as if it was good as new, fully functioning. And even though he won fair and square, he knew that they were out to get him because he's God and he knows the hearts of sinful men. It's amazing here. And just as he slipped right in to the synagogue to, to, to further the debate somehow in his miraculous ability to evade these murderous haters, you see, he slipped right out because it was not his time to die. There would come a day when it was his time to go to the cross and, and die, but that day was not the day yet. But did you notice the really awesome reality that his covert sneaking away and avoiding this loud brawl, did you see that he was fulfilling scripture in that? Matthew quotes Isaiah 52, one through three, which is a prophecy of the suffering servant now seen fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Look again at verses 18 through 19 for this. Behold, my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved, with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. Jesus, using his jujitsu sneak evasion tactics to get out of there and not having an all-out screaming match or battle that would lead to his death that day in the synagogue, actually fulfills Old Testament scripture because he would go from this debate and just keep on healing even more and more people on the Sabbath because it was lawful and good for him to do that kind of gracious and compassionate good work on the Sabbath. You see that? And if those Pharisees and religious leaders were mad about the healing of this one guy with the withered hand, it's good that Jesus got away because he kept on healing more and more. Everyone who came, he kept on healing them. And then he asked them to keep it under wraps because it was not his time yet to die. So he could avoid being killed too soon outside of God's plan and you see Jesus was all about helping people wasn't he and showing grace and mercy to the hurting and though the religious leaders rejected him what does he do he goes to the Gentiles he gives Gentiles non-Jewish people hope non-religious people hope the Pharisees you see heaped up burdensome laws and expectations to break people down and make them tired, exhausted, broken, abused even, as we saw earlier in Matthew chapter 9, as we saw together before, I'm going to read it again in verse 36, it says, when he saw the crowds, this is talking about Jesus, when he saw the crowds, he had, what, compassion for them. Why? Because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. He saw people with bad religious leaders who hurt the sheep and were selfish. Kind of like the wicked leaders of old who only cared about feeding themselves 
and were harsh with the sheep, abused the sheep. And we're gonna see later in this very book, later in the series, uh, in Matthew chapter 23, when we get there, Lord willing, Jesus pronouncing woes to the scribes and Pharisees. Read it this afternoon if you wanna get more, because he says a lot here. Cursing them, judging them, saying that they were nothing but mere hypocrites who don't practice what they preach. And in verse four of Matthew 23, he says, amongst other things, they tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. You see the hypocrisy? This describes Jesus' debates and his opponents in the debate, doesn't it? Jesus is not only going to win the Sabbath debate that day, and maybe he does, but further fulfill scripture to show this gentle and lowly savior that we saw last week, even today. Really, he was the only one who was going to provide actual rest. Hear this, everyone, if you take away one thing from this sermon. Hear this, kids, young or old, Jesus, Jesus himself, is the only way to rest. There is no rest outside of Jesus. Only toil, only hardship, only judgment, only more and more works and burdens, and less and less mercy and grace. Actually, none of it. Without Jesus, there is no rest outside of him. So if you don't know Jesus today, the fact that he died to pay for the sins of many and their many evil deeds, if you don't know Jesus in that way, for you personally, if you don't know that he died for sinners, even yours, should you just believe in him and, and be saved? And if you've found yourself broken and hurt and abused and tired and unsure, if you could even make it another day. Why? Because it's like your light is flickering out. Maybe that's you. Here again also the fulfillment of Jesus from Isaiah chapter 52 as quoted here in Matthew 12, 20 through 21. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. So all who are weary and weak and heavy laden, Jesus will not discard you like most would just toss out a broken reed or a smoldering wick. The illustration points to useless and broken items that would normally just be trampled and discarded because they're useless in the eyes of the world. But you see, Jesus here, he doesn't do that, does he? Does he? No. Instead, he takes the broken and abused and hurt and burdened down and he lifts them up because of his love and mercy. That's just the kind of savior Jesus is. And he takes the dwindling down and wasting away someone who has no earthly hope and is about to be snuffed out without light and completely zapped of all energy 
and he carefully and delicately and patiently and lovingly and gently restores and gives hope in the midst, even when they're dying inside. Are you dying inside? Have you lost hope? Are you broken and weary and weak and at the end of your rope? Let me speak directly to you. Jesus is the Savior for you. He will not make bad things worse like the Pharisees will and would. He can and will make things better because he can and will be gentle for you. And he went to the cross to die for all your sin and guilt. And he will be compassionate to rescue you from your current state of brokenness and being downhearted, come to this gentle and lowly Savior who is the one who can actually provide for you rest and forgiveness and help in your time of need. Let's pray to this God that he might draw hurting people to his son even right now. Our Father and our God, we just ask desperately that you would draw people to you who do not know you and who do not have hope. We pray that you would provide and bolster the current hope, even if it's dwindling, of the believers that are here today, that they would see in you the answer, the hope, the solution to everything and that you would really be there and comfort them through your son. They need it. We need it. We all need it. Would you, would you just pour that out upon us, Lord? Would you do a mighty work? Oh, God, we ask these things in the name of your powerful son, Jesus Christ. Amen.